You're listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Published last fall, The Empty Throne by Evo Dalder and my guest, Dr. Jim Lindsay, dissects comprehensively and succinctly the early years of the Trump administration's foreign policy. The withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the Paris Climate Accords, and meetings at NATO or the Helsinki Summit between President Putin and Trump have been well reported. The significant contribution of this book is the retelling of these events within the context of the U.S. shrinking leadership of the liberal world order and what we stand to lose as we drift away from our historical position. Jim is Senior Vice President and Director of Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. I would suggest that after you listen to Global IQ Minute that you also listen, as I do every week, to Jim's podcast, The President's Inbox. It's always nice to have you back in Texas, Jim. Thanks for coming. It's great to be here, Jim. Thank you for the kind words. One of the criticisms of President Trump is that his views are erratic. But when you look back at some of his earlier speeches and even ads that he took out in the New York Times, that failing newspaper, his positions on trade and immigration have been quite consistent. Would you agree with that? Definitely. I mean, the president for more than 30 years now has been telling a story about American foreign policy. And in this story, the United States is being taken advantage of by allies that refuse to carry their share of the burden and seeing American jobs taken away by our trading partners because of unfair trade agreements. That has been the president's animating story, whether it was in that New York Times advertisement back in September of 1987. It was the story he told on the campaign trail in 2016, and it's a deeply flawed story. Your book focuses greatly on the establishment of what is commonly known as the liberal world order. To begin our conversation about that, remind us what it is and the role that the United States played in its formation. People write books on this, Jim, so I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. In essence, the liberal world order, also called the rules-based order, also called Pax Americana, is in essence the way the world's operated for the last 70 years. It was a world deliberately created by the United States after the end of World War II by presidents and secretaries of state and secretaries of defense who were trying to avoid a repetition of what had led up to World War II. Resurgent nationalism tied with this sort of doggy dog economic competition that had brought about and helped perpetuate the Great Depression. And in that order, the United States created, in essence, what President like FDR and then Harry Truman decided was that the United States would not repeat the mistakes of the past of trying to dominate others, but would rather try to create a world in which the United States could lead, give space for other countries to succeed, and that, in essence, by doing so, the United States would promote both its security and its prosperity. In essence, it was looking at other countries as force multipliers rather than as threats. This past weekend, there was a meeting that's taken place for, I guess, over 50 years, the Munich Security Conference, and there you saw very clearly different approaches. Look at what Chancellor Merkel said about the importance of the liberal world order, and then you had the speech by Vice President Pence, which certainly took a different tact. Give us more insight about what really occurred there. Well, I think what you saw at the Munich Security Conference, and particularly in Chancellor Merkel's comments, is a recognition, to some degree resignation, by the Europeans that President Trump is not going to change. He does not believe in this rules-based order. It's really an American-led order. 
that the president is not interested in playing the role that American presidents have played for the last 70 years, a leadership role in which we, in essence, mobilize other countries in pursuit of common interests in the solve and address common problems. Rather, the president is really focused on what he often talks about, which is winning. And obviously, winning implies beating. Uh, and again, this is a president who's talked about our closest allies as being foes, something you didn't see Dwight Eisenhower or John F. Kennedy or Lyndon Johnson or Ronald Reagan say. And I think it was a saying, one of my colleagues described Europe during the first two years of the Trump presidency by saying that the slogan that European leaders went by in terms of President Trump was, don't isolate him, don't give in to him, don't give up on him. And I think what you saw in Chancellor Merkel's speech is, and it speaks more broadly about Europe, European leaders giving up on Donald Trump, and that the United States may never come back, and they're, in essence, going to have to sort of chart their own course. That is not necessarily good for the United States. I'm somewhat reluctant to bring up the art of the deal, because I'm not even sure how much he was involved in writing it. But one of the things that was in the book is he said, don't take your negotiating partner beyond their breaking point. But that's what he seems to do almost all the time. Certainly. Uh, certainly since becoming president, that's been the case. I can't speak to the president's real estate days. And, and we're seeing this sort of time and again in which the president makes big demands. He's very disruptive. He's quite proud of being disruptive. But that disruption is often not tied to a clear-cut strategy. And as a result, the president often gets himself into situations where it is unclear what it is that he is asking for. And one of the things people learn in negotiation is that if you don't know what the party across the table is looking to get, it is hard to strike a deal. We've seen this a lot on trade, where the president, I think the biggest issue would be on uh, this trade war with China. It's not clear whether the president is simply interested in driving down the bilateral trade deficit, or he's interested in getting better access for U.S. firms to the China market, or he's interested in having the Chinese do less economic espionage, or if what he's really trying to do is to get China to move away from its sort of state intervention in the economy and become a full market economy. Those are very different objectives, and particularly the last several, are quite ambitious and ones that we are very unlikely to be able to achieve. And just throwing out that China is our adversary is not sufficient. I read this afternoon an article by John Hanna, who's now a senior fellow mm -hmm. at the Foundation for Defense of Democracy. And it was a piece that you, know, you may have seen it seeking mm -hmm. to analyze Trump's successes and failures. And he said that the president should receive some credit for raising awareness that China represents a threat central to long-term U.S. interest. Would you agree with that? Very much so. And I think it's important when you look at President Trump not to begin with the premise that everything the president has done uh, has turned things to ashes. I don't think that's the case. But I actually think you know the point that John makes in that article highlights what I consider to be a fundamental irony of the Trump foreign policy. If you think back to 2015, 2016, President Trump is on the campaign trail, and what he's saying to Americans over and over again is that our allies are not doing enough. And I think the inference many people drew from it is that he was going to get them to do more. But here you have a President Trump now having the opportunity to act on that. And in many cases, he's actually refused offers of help from our friends and allies. Uh, we see this on a number of issues. 
let's take the Iran nuclear deal, or even on the case of Chinese trade. The president, in essence, pounded on the table, said this is a problem, we have to do something about it. And we've seen our closest friends and allies come and say, we agree, we're willing to work with you. And the message from the White House hasn't been great, let's do this together, because we're stronger together. In essence, the message from the White House has been, we don't need your help. And the we'll Iran nuclear deal is a perfect example because we now will no longer have a seat at the table. We no longer seat at, we have a seat at the table. And as they say in diplomacy, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And I think this is a real problem going forward. And the significant thing about the Iran nuclear deal is that we now have a situation in which the United States is clearly at odds with its closest allies on how to do something. And the allies are now looking for ways to work without the United States and to work around the United States. They may not be successful in this particular instance for a variety of reasons, but it's going to establish a pattern in which countries are going to begin to not think that they have to work with the United States. And that's going to make it harder for the United States to achieve many of the things that it hopes to in foreign affairs. So you have a prescription, probably a prescription that you wish we wouldn't have to take out, and that is, again, the article that you wrote with Evo for Foreign Affairs, where you call for the need or of establishment formation of what you call the Committee to Save the World Over. Well, that was the, the editors order. of Foreign Affairs decided to come up with that snappy title. One, one piece of advice is that authors very seldom get to write their own headlines. We called it something very boring, the G9. The argument simply is, is that America's friends and allies can and should do more. I think it's important when we talk about this rules-based order, we might really call it the American letter, I think that's the most accurate title, that it was showing its age after 70 years. It was showing its age in part because there are always countries that opposed it, think Russia. Uh, it was showing its age partly because it succeeded. As you said, frayed around the edges. It was fraying around the edges. It was even beginning to fracture. And, and again, one of the things was we said if you open up your markets, you adopt the rule of law, your economies will do well. Guess what? Countries signed up to do that. It worked. And what you had was a dispersion of power. No one ever had sat down 70 years ago and said, okay, how do we make sure this order can adapt to a changing distribution of power? And finally, the United States, frankly, made some decisions that actually hurt the order. I think, for example, the invasion of Iraq, uh, which the United States didn't do because it the demands of leadership called it to do. We did it over the objections of our friends and allies, and I think it really, it greatly created problems for the United States and for its foreign policy approach. Likewise, the great financial crisis of 2008-2009 threw into question the idea that the United States sort of understood the secret sauce that brought around prosperity. I mean, here was a country that had given other countries uh, the rules on how to operate, and those rules seemingly took us nearly into the collapse of the international financial system. So as you look at it, that order was fraying, and it needed some work. And, and I think going forward, what we're going to have to do, if it is to succeed, number one, the United States has to try to return to leadership, to work with others, not denigrate others, particularly our closest friends and allies. Uh, but obviously, our friends and allies are also going to have to do more. With greater affluence, I guess, comes greater responsibility. And again, I think they are capable of doing so, but it's not going to happen unless the United States tries to organize it. And the great risk we run into is that by the time uh, leadership in Washington realizes the importance of leadership, there is, in fact, greater strength in numbers, that our allies are force multipliers, 
we may discover that they're no longer willing or far less willing to work with and us. And they may not trust us as they did before. And they may not trust us. And again, this is part of the challenge with the way President Trump frequently talks about countries. It's quite right that the United States is still part of NATO. It still belongs to a number of other military alliances. But alliances fundamentally depend upon the assumption that when the, the moment comes, Faith. that everybody will do what they're supposed to do, that in fact, it will be an all for one moment. And if you have a president who's continually denigrating alliances, talking about you know, why is it that the United States is defending Montenegro, the Montenegrins are a very aggressive people, those sort of comments undermine the purpose of an alliance. And what they do is they say to alliance members, this alliance may not work for you, but it also says to countries that may be threats to those allies, maybe the United States isn't committed to this alliance. And that can sow a recipe of great harm. And again, keep in mind, this structure, the American-led order, the rules-based order, was created because FDR, Harry Truman, George C. Marshall, Dean Acheson, uh, some of the greatest American foreign policy were trying to fix a very real problem. They saw what happened when nationalism and economic competitiveness was allowed to run amok. You got the outbreak of conflict. And as much as the original America First movement promised Americans that if they sort of stayed at home, problems would stay at bay, we learned on December 7th, 1941, that that's not the case. the case. We have just another minute. I want to ask you to comment on what changes you see now in Congress. Obviously, we've had a shift in control in the House. That means the Democrats now have an institutional platform. And you're going to discover going forward that that institutional platform creates some opportunities for Congress to have a say, but it doesn't fundamentally rewrite the situation. Here's why. In foreign policy, presidents have, for reasons of constitutional and statutory authority, a lot of flexibility. So unless it's a case that the president clearly cannot act without congressional authority, for example, in, in signing a, uh, concluding a trade deal, presidents can be limited in what they can accomplish. But in many other areas of foreign policy, for the use of military force, deciding when to negotiate or whether to negotiate at all, those are presidential powers beyond Congress's reach. Now, there's a lot of talk on Capitol Hill about Congress reclaiming its powers, particularly in trade policy, but there you run up against a fundamental rule of, of uh, life in, in Washington, D.C. That is, if Congress wants to take back power, it has to pass a law. Presidents can veto we laws, yep. and the reality is it's <coughs> very, very difficult for Congress to override a veto. We've done it once in, in foreign policy in the last 33 years. Jim, I want to thank you so much for being our guest on Global IQ Minute. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org.